0: Thank you, Katie. Well, before we begin, I've been told that uh, an old friend of mine is with us today. Pete Privatera, one of the pastors, a senior pastor of one of our sister churches out in Lancaster, uh, Crossway Church, is with us. So, uh, Pete, would you just raise your hand? So we can all see you and greet you. You are welcome uh, to be here. I've known Pete, uh I've known Pete since I was what 13 or 14. Um, he was actually out of Covenant Fellowship with me. I was a, an intern at Covenant Fellowship uh, doing maintenance, not, not anything pastoral. Um, and he witnessed me throwing rocks at my peers uh, while we were working. Uh, the, he, he's seen uh, me as an adolescent. But he still owes me at lunch because I totally owned him on the basketball court. So I'm still holding you to that. But you're welcome with us. Thanks for joining us. Looks like your whole family's here. So you're welcome. Well, um,. This past year, you guys know that I was away at our Pastors College, um, Sovereign Grace Pastors College, and one of our sister churches in Knoxville, Tennessee, um, is really especially gifted in the ministry of prophecy. And so they sent a group of individuals up to bless the class by praying and prophesying over us. And the reaction to this was actually a little bit of a, a mixed bag amongst my class, there were some who were super excited, really eager to benefit from prophecy, but there were others who were terrified, scared, and were desperately asking for prayer as the day approached for the meeting. And still others were a little bit disappointed or discouraged that they had to find yet another event, another, they had to find babysitting for yet another event on their calendar. And we can all relate with that. But why such different reactions? Well, after debriefing together, we actually learned that we had all had very different experiences with the spiritual gifts. Some had been accused, even attacked, under the name of prophecy. Others had witnessed wild and chaotic events that left a lingering bad taste in their mouths. And some had benefited from these gifts so consistently that they were more excited about this meeting than anything else that had happened in the PC that year. And I know, as I say to you, that this passage talks about the spiritual gifts. There may be very similar reactions happening amongst you right now. Maybe you find yourself in a place where you freeze up and feel uncomfortable when this topic of the spiritual gifts comes up from your past experience. or Maybe you find it a bit Disinteresting or, or disappointing. Thinking, why do we need to learn this right now? Well, at Risen Hope Church, we belong to a family of sovereign gra- a family of churches, Sovereign Grace Churches. And over the years, I grew up in a Sovereign Grace Church, and I often heard our theology described as essentially Reformed with a significant charismatic dimension. And since the very beginning of the movement, what Paul has to say about the spiritual gifts here in One Corinthians. 12 through 14, has been one of the defining characteristics of our churches, and it remains one of the salient features of our church here at Risen Hope. You see, Paul addresses our concerns, our fears of the abuse of the gifts, our careful avoidance of anything spontaneous, or maybe our over-accentuation of spiritual phenomenon even more than the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He shows that spiritual gifts aren't optional. They aren't reserved for the spiritually elite or the really serious Christian. They aren't a really impressive addition to the Christian status resume. They aren't what establishes a person's spiritual maturity. The Corinthians were looking at spiritual gifts completely flipped upside down. They were looking at them as a means towards selfish goals of ambition. And even in our own practice of the spiritual gifts, there are times when we can view them as a means towards gaining a status in the church. Or maybe we can relegate them to a place where they're unimportant or insignificant to our growth and godliness. But Paul helps us to pursue the gifts despite our fears or our ambitions and protects us from a proud spiritual self-centeredness. And he does this by taking our lens that can so often be focused just on ourselves in the mirror and refocuses us to look at the whole room and include each other in that picture. This is what this this text uh, tells us more than anything else. The aim of the spiritual gifts in the gathered church is selfless love that results in others' edification. So the aim of the spiritual gifts in the gathered church Is selfless love that results in others' edification. So, Paul's calling us today to love. And in that love, to pursue the spiritual gifts, to pursue them so that we might be used for each other's benefit when we gather, to not let the fear of others or even the obsession with ourselves be the primary motivators for ministering to each other. He's calling us to not think of our own needs, our own experiences, our own fears, but to think of the needs, experiences of those around us and to minister to each other. So the goal of the spiritual gifts is to build up the church. And we see this throughout the chapter as Katie so well read. We read this all all over the place in this text. In verse 3, Paul says, Speak to people, why? For their upbuilding and encouragement consolation. In verse 4, the one who prophesies builds up the church. In verse 5, Paul shows uh, his purpose, speaking so highly of prophecy. Why practice prophecy? So that the church may be built up. And once again, in verse 26, let all things be done for the building up. So Paul bangs home his main point over and over and over again. And it doesn't take a scholar To look at this uh, this passage and see his main emphasis, a repeated and insistent command that our practice of the gifts in the gathered church would be designed to edify each other, build each other up. And in the kindness of God, he not only inspired Paul to help us see the goal of the gifts, edification, he tells us four things that need to be present when we practice the gifts if they're going to edify each other. So there's going to be four things we pull from this passage, four aspects of our practice of the spiritual gifts. And the first one we'll be looking at is loving practice of the gifts. So our practice of the gifts must first be loving if it's going to edify each other. So let's look at this in verse 1. Paul says, pursue love. Chapter 14 that we just read is actually the very end of a three-chapter argument where Paul really lays a theological smackdown on the church of Corinth. He starts in chapter 12 by defining and explaining what the spiritual gifts are and their function in building up the body of Christ. And then in chapter 13, he goes deeper to the core principle that underlies all of the spiritual gifts, love. And this is where we find that passage that is so famous and read at so many different weddings. You hear it read all the time at these weddings. It says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Beautiful words. But, far from the romantic application that many make of these verses, Paul's extolling the beauty and the dignity of love as a correction of the Corinthians' loveless use of the spiritual gifts. Love has been around before the spiritual gifts. And we will continue to love each other even far after the time for the gifts to cease has come. Love's the unchanging principle. It's the fulfillment of the whole law. It's the litmus test, the test whether or not we're Christians or not, how well we love. It's the essential character trait that undergirds so much of our faith. And the spiritual gifts are just one way that we go about loving each other when we gather, especially on Sunday afternoons. And so Paul brings the entire weight of that three-chapter argument into the first verse of chapter 14 when he says, pursue love. He brings the full weight of those verses we're so familiar with into that verse, pursue love. And he makes it extremely clear that if we're going to be effective in edifying each other, Our intent when we use the gifts must be love, a heart filled with what we like to say, neighbor love. Now in college, I took a whole bunch of classes that I didn't know why I needed to take. Maybe you did too. We called them gen eds, right? Things that you just kind of have to get out of the way your first couple years of college, and then you can move on to your major courses, right? Well, sometimes in the Christian walk, we can think of love as a gen ed to the Christian life. We can think of something we, It's baby steps. Oh, yeah, love each other. Now I'm going to move on to something else like healing or prophecy. That's where, that's where like, the mature Christians are operating. That's not what Paul says. What Paul says is pursue love. He uses a particular verb here that actually brings to mind a continual, ongoing pursuit of love. Not a love that you check the box off or pass the course and move on, but an ongoing necessary foundation for the effective use of spiritual gifts. So whether you've been following Jesus for 30 seconds or for 30 years, you need to pursue love. Whether you are uh, in the beginning or the end of your walk, love is the goal. It's not a progression where we move from loving people to ministering to people out of power more than healing, more than prophecy, more than even a fresh awareness of the tangible presence of the Holy Spirit, what we're called to give each other as Christians is love. Paul won't let us forget that if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clashing cymbal, right? He, even as he says, especially pursue prophecy, He won't let them forget that if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Right? 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 4, and Ephesians 4 give us several lists of spiritual gifts. And here's a few of them. Wisdom, faith, healing, prophecy, tongues, interpretation of tongues, teaching, service, equipping others to share the gospel. So my question for us is where has God gifted you? Where has he specially supernaturally equipped you to love your neighbor? Here's a couple ways maybe he's blessed you. Think of the empty nesters who serve in promise kingdom. What an act of love to young parents as A young parent, I can tell you that sometimes Sunday afternoons are the one reprieve, right, to an ongoing endless care process for my kids. It's such an act of love for those who would serve us in Promise Kingdom. Think of the folks that regularly take time after the service to pray uh, for healing, for those who maybe have something as small as a cold to something as large as a chronic illness. Think of those who pray throughout the week that God would give them a prophetic word to build up the congregation. They're loving us every time they get up out of their chair, they put to death the fear of man, and they walk forward to share on behalf of the church to bless us. What an opportunity to love. It's not just about ministering out of power. It's coming from a foundation of caring about each other. But friends, any spiritual gift, and really any action for that matter, that doesn't come from a heart of love, won't produce the edification that this passage holds up for us. We must have a heart of patience, kindness, selflessness, deference, one that's eager to think highly of other people when we use the gifts. So, why do you use your gift? Let's analyze our hearts together. Has your practice become more motivated? by a desire for reputation? Is your heart in serving, praying, prophesying, or teaching others really just a yearning for them to think more highly of you? Where does your mind first go when an opportunity to minister to others comes up? Is it that person, loving that person, or is it an opportunity for self? 1 Corinthians 13 tells us love does not envy. It does not boast. The aim of the spiritual gifts in the gathered church is selfless love that results in others' edification. And using the gifts that the Spirit has given us in ways like serving and teaching and prophesying can be a powerful act of love, but at the same time, what begins as an honest and genuine effort to love others can sometimes become a dull, and sort of numb process that's more focused on duty or routine than it is on the people we're actually blessing. So does your current practice of your spiritual gifts reflect the loving intent that Paul commands? Have you become joyless in your gift? Is there a numbness that's crept into your heart as you serve? Is there times when you feel like you're going through the motions? Have you forgotten that your gifts are really opportunities to love your neighbor. So what does it look like when we do have a loving intent? What can we commit to and seek to change? And if that was speaking to you and you feel like, yeah, you know what, the Lord's correcting me right now. Well, love is patient and kind. We minister to each other with no time limit. Our service, our hospitality, our teaching is all designed around loving the other person, and not necessarily magnifying ourselves. If you're teaching in Promise kingdom, it's not designed to show off your knowledge. It's designed to move at the pace that's going to help these kids to learn. Love is not arrogant or rude. We don't withdraw from the church into a special group of gifted people. We, we minister to each other, anyone. We don't hesitate to open up if we're convicted of sin. We don't ever get to a place where when the pastor makes an application and it applies to us, we don't raise our hand because, uh, no, I'm like, I'm the minister I'm not ministered to. We, we, we never get to that place. We never get to a place where we're so care, caring so much about our own reputation that we're just trying to preserve it. Love is not arrogant or rude. Love bears all things. Who you minister to isn't limited by how they have treated you. Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So you keep serving that troublemaker and promised kingdom. Or your own children, for that matter, through the challenging seasons. And you keep praying for your friend, even though the trial keeps going and the tears don't seem to have an end. What is your motivation for the gifts? Let's commit right now. Pursue love. Pursue love. But even if, if right now you find yourself, man, I've just been missing the whole aim of this, the, 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 the correction here is not to stop ministering. We don't become paralyzed and stop. Paul says, pursue love and what? Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. So Paul tells us, examine your hearts. Are you loving people? But he also tells us that for our practice, we need to be zealous. We need to be loving. And now our second point. We need to be zealous. This is still in verse 1. Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Now, when Katie read that earlier, you probably noticed that Paul has a ton to say about prophecy and tongues in this uh, passage. And this is probably because the church of Corinth was gauging their spirituality based on how publicly, how loudly, how pronouncedly they could just babble at the top of their voice. They had elevated the gift of tongues to the place of where it was, if you were a good Christian, you were great at tongues. So you imagine like a a group of 50 folks, all just yelling at the same time, babbling in indiscriminate noises, not listening to each other at all. Maybe that sounds a little like your dinner table, right? When you're all talking at the same time. I know it's a little close to home for me. But what was happening in the gathered church of Corinth was pretty much chaos, right and it would have looked eerily similar to the practices of many pagan temples right across the street yet paul says to them earnestly desire the spiritual gifts now in light of the abuse of the corinthian church that should be stunning but paul's critique isn't it's not about their love to, for exercising the gifts He actually commands this congregation to continue to be zealous for the gifts. And later in verse 18, you might have noticed Paul actually says he prays in tongues even more than the Corinthians do. He's claiming to be even more zealous for the gifts than this spiritual gift-obsessed church is. Now, if I were there, I'd be like, let's uh, hold off on the tongues for a little bit. So we can get a little order, it's a little out of control, but Paul doubles down with another command saying, pursue the gifts. So my question for us, what might Paul say to you and I? I mean, if he doesn't rebuke them for their zealous pursuit, but instead doubles down with another command, how would he view my often tepid practice of the gifts? There were times when I spoke in tongues in my private quiet times every day. I can't remember the last time I did that until this week because I you know, want to get my game together for preaching. <laughs> Maybe you find yourself in that category too. Feel the, 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 the gracious and gentle correcting of the Holy Spirit. Friends, is your life marked by a radical, zealous pursuit of the spiritual gifts? How are you stewarding the gifts that God's already given you? Have you ceased to practice the gifts? Have you ever prayed that God would give you gifts that you don't currently have? Have you tried to speak in tongues? Have you prayed for it? Have you prayed for the gift of interpretation? Have you prayed for the gift of prophecy? Are there times when you know you have impressions, thoughts come to you, and we're worshiping together, and you push it down because you're afraid of what folks will think? Is your zeal limited to context? Have you st- stopped exercising the gifts in private, but you're only exercising them in public when we gather? Might be that we care too much about what each other think and not enough about what God thinks, if that's the case. Have you stopped exercising in public and only are exercising your gifts in private? Perhaps the fear of man is driving our practice more than it should when... Edification of others should be the goal. Our practice of the gifts in the church must maximize the edification of each other. And the gifts are not just for our benefit. They're not impressive additions to the Christian resume. The gifts are about loving each other. And when we fail to zealously practice the spiritual gifts, we not only miss out on incredible experience of spirit-filled communion with God, we also fail to love our neighbor. Remember, we're constantly prone to fall to the temptation to focus more on ourselves than on the people around us when we gather, and we can come simply expecting others to exercise their gifts and minister to us. We can fail to see that God has promised to use you, promised to use me, to build up His church. I want to ask you to do something awkward in a second. Look at the person next to you, not your spouse, somebody else if if you're sitting next to your spouse. That person right there, God has given you supernatural grace for that person. He has equipped you to build that person up. You may not know them yet, but there may be a day when you bless them and you give them that word they just needed in that moment. But if we do not zealously pursue the gifts, we don't just disobey Paul's command here. We also fail to extend the grace that our neighbors are in desperate need of. God has designed His church to be a body where we We work together as members, and we bless each other, and we build up the body of Christ. So our our practice of the gifts, for it to edify, must be loving, it must be zealous. And then Paul takes a big chunk of what he says to address the speech gifts. And when we're talking about speaking, Paul says that for our our practice of our gifts to uh, to be edifying, they have to be intelligible. So that's our third point, loving, zealous, and now intelligible. Verse 1 through 26 really bring this out. So Paul's really moving more directly to the particular issues here in Corinth. He's kind of going for the jugular in his argument. And it's important before we proceed to just note two things. First, he's talking about speech gifts. So his comments here are not so much about serving or hospitality, but more on things that are spoken. Second, he's talking more about the corporate church what happens when we gather together than he is talking about what happens in private in our personal communion times. And with that in mind, it makes a lot of sense that Paul would rebuke the Corinthians for their obsession with the corporate use of tongues. I mean, he doesn't forbid the use of tongues, but he states that he'd rather that they pursue prophecy. And Risen Hope, he's also telling us that we should elevate the gift of prophecy over tongues for us to pursue when we gather. Now, the prophecy Paul speaks of here is not the same as the prophecy in the Old Testament. When you think of Elijah and Jeremiah and Isaiah, those guys filled a mediatorial role where they took the word of God and they mediated it to his people. Who are you going to call when you want to know what God has to say? Well, not Ghostbusters. You're going to call a prophet in the Old Testament. But now that Jesus has come, no longer do we go to a prophet to know the will of God. He's our prophet, priest, and king. 1 Timothy 2, 5 tells us that there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. No longer is there is our need for someone to bring us the word of God from heaven because Christ has come as our prophet, priest, and king. But there is a different New Testament, New Covenant sense to the term prophecy, which is not spoken of as an office but as a spiritual gift. Back in chapter 13, if you can flip back there for a second, in verse 9, he he clarifies this. He says in verse 9, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways." For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So Paul clearly identifies prophecy here as a spiritual gift that will be present until we see Jesus face to face. He clarifies that we prophesy in part. Know in part, see in a mirror dimly. And each of those qualifiers show us that the spiritual gift of prophecy is not always 100% accurate and certainly shouldn't be elevated to an all-authoritative binding level like the Bible. Now, the only authoritative revelation is that of the Scriptures, God's holy Word. So our, our response to when the Word of God is read is absolute obedience our response when someone speaks a prophetic word should be testing. We must carefully guard our hearts when we receive a prophetic word. A prophecy shouldn't be determinative. It shouldn't be your golden ticket that you wave, even though everybody's telling you not to do something. You're like, but I got a prophecy. If, especially if God's word says something counter, it must be in submission God's word. God's word is the absolute authority. And this is why Paul says that prophecy must be tested in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. So why does Paul urge us to especially pursue the gift of prophecy? He doesn't say because it's binding authoritative revelation. He says in verse 3, The one who speaks to, uh, who, who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. And in verse 5, he says, Prophecy is better than tongues because it builds the church up. And again, in verse 12, he says, Strive to excel in building up the church. Paul elevates prophecy because it edifies other people when we gather. So, why is prophecy more effective at edifying than tongues? Well, this is what Paul says in verse 2. For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. No one understands him. Why doesn't tongues edify your brother or sister next to you? They can't tell what you mean. They can't make out what you're trying to say. And Paul illustrates this by talking about music. You know, he says, without distinct notes, music doesn't, it's, not, it's not intelligible. And without knowledge of a language, someone can speak to you all day. You're not going to understand anything. And I remember when I was a, when I was a kid, I, I, I went to what felt like a million orchestral performances. My mom would, like, drag me to them um, against my will so that I could support my sister, Noelle Huey, who was leading us uh, earlier today in singing, um, by throwing a temper tantrum in my seat. Um, <laughs> and I remember the first time I ever went. And I was kind of like, you know, taking it all in, my bad, attitude, And suddenly, like, all the instruments started playing, and it sounded awful. Like, they were all, like, playing at the same time, like, totally clashing, awful sounds. Like, they were all tuning, right? But in my little kid brain, I'm like, what is this horrible music? These people are terrible. Like, why is Noel doing this? Why do I have to be there, right? And I started feeling all justified. But then, all of a sudden, Handel's Messiah started. And each voice, each instrument added in skillfully, going in and out, creating this beautiful symphony. I was still angry, but it was beautiful. <laughs> and it was undeniable, the point that Paul's making here. You know, music without distinct notes does not edify. It does not, it's not intelligible, right? And so tongues is more, is more elevated for us to pursue in, the, in our gathered assembly because it, it's intelligible. Paul also makes an interesting note as he goes further in these verses, talking about how prophecy is primarily a sign for believers in their their edification, but it is also an interesting evangelistic tool for unbelievers. Now look with me in verse 24. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Similarly, if we all speak in tongues in our gathered worship indiscriminately, loudly, it functions as a sign of judgment on those who do not believe. Verse 23 says that tongues without interpretation will cause unbelievers to say we're out of our minds. So this is another reason, right? If we all are speaking in tongues unintelligibly, it's just going to push those who are questioning their faith or are coming into the congregation away, whereas prophecy speaks directly, intelligibly to their heart. So this is yet another reason why prophecy edifies more than tongues. And this is why at Risen Hope, we don't simply allow folks to just call out publicly um, when they believe that God's given them a tongue to share with the congregation. We ask that anyone who feels that they have a tongue would come to our congregational microphone um, so that we can ask the rest of the church that they would pray that the Lord would give them interpretation. We continue what we've prepared, the music keeps going, um, and we just hope that the Lord brings an interpretation as well. And we believe that this is wise because it protects the church from spending a really long amount of time awkwardly waiting around for someone to bring an interpretation Um, And it also, probably more seriously, prevents us from breaking this command that tongues should not be given without an interpretation. Now that being said, when we are singing, I'd encourage you to come to the microphone if you have a tongue or prophecy. All we are called to do is to be faithful And the gifts that we have been given, and and to zealously, earnestly pursue those gifts. So this means we step out in faith when we believe the Holy Spirit is going to use us. You don't have to know if prophecy is genuine to come to the congregational microphone. I'll tell you what, guys, when I go forward and share a word, I don't know. But you can come forward and, and, and submit it to the person who's governing the mic, You don't need to know if a tongue that you've been given has an interpretation or not to come to the microphone. And by actually coming, you then encourage other people to be faithful in their pursuit if they have the gift of interpretation. We need the gift that God has given you. And we'd encourage you to be faithful in it. And he will bring an interpreter to a tongue if, if that is for the benefit of the church. The aim of the spiritual gifts in the gathered church is selfless love the results in others edification. And because of this, when we practice the speech gifts, we must do this intelligibly. And the last thing that this passage says about our practice of the gifts is that we must practice these gifts orderly. We see this from verse 29 to verse 40. So the intelligibility principle Paul just laid out leads us directly to his next point, that the spiritual gifts have to be used in an orderly way. Why? So that they're edifying. In many ways, this passage in 1 Corinthians 14, it gives us the clearest picture of what was happening in the early church right after the time of Christ. It's almost like we discovered like some hidden film of the saints gathering. Because Paul's comments are so specific and so enlightening of what they were doing when they were gathering. And because of that, his guidelines of order that he gives to them are precious truth for us when we gather as well. So he gives us several guidelines. You'll see the first one in verse 29. He says that two or three prophets should speak and let the other weigh it. So we shouldn't have like an unending series of prophecies where no one's really considering what was just said. We should, the others in this passage, probably the church, probably the congregation, we should weigh what's said when it's given. We also see the speech gifts are to be used one at a time in verse 30 where he says if a revelation is made to one another sitting there let the first be silent so we're supposed to be listening to each other and as paul's talking about the weighing of prophetic words here he finds it necessary to clarify that women should not publicly evaluate prophetic words in the gathered church we see that in verse 33 you probably noticed this because Katie's a woman and she was reading these words. So I appreciate your, uh, your bravery here, Katie. This is what he says. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law says. Now here's what we know that doesn't mean. Paul encourages all Christians, men and women, to test prophecies in 1 Thessalonians 5. When he says, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good. So Paul's not saying that the ladies shouldn't critically analyze prophetic words in any sense. I mean, we should all be testing, right, and weighing what is said, when it's said from the microphone. But what Paul is saying here is that ladies shouldn't be testing and evaluating prophecies on behalf of the church. Now, we need to be careful to avoid the mistake that Paul's talking about all types of speaking here, right? Otherwise, we wouldn't have ladies reading God's word. We know from 1 Corinthians 11 that Paul has just encouraged ladies to pray and prophesy in the gathered church. So he's not forbidding speech of all types. He's forbidding the type of speech that's directly connected to the teaching and governing of the gathered church. This is the same point that Paul makes in 1 Timothy 2 when he says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. It's only in the teaching and governing function in the gathered church that Paul is prohibiting. So ladies, we need your voice. We need your singing. We need your prayer. We need your prophecy, your testimonies, and other vocal additions. These aren't ways that you can get involved in if you want to or if you feel like it. We need you to participate in these ways. You, I mean this, we mean this, you are integral to our church. The roles you play are vital and necessary to our worship. Without you, we cannot be a healthy body. So though we believe, 1 Corinthians 14, our passage today, tells us a man should be governing the congregational microphone, the ways that we need ladies involvement, in Risen, ladies' involvement in Risen Hope Church are many. You ladies are made equally in the image of God. You are equally members of the body of Christ. You are equally priests of the household of God. And we need your voice and we need your gifts. I thank God for how many awesome, qualified, gifted ladies that he has given our church. Amen? That's right. We need your tireless feet in service. We need your gift of teaching in promised kingdom and in the training of other women. We need your gift of reading God's word. We need your wisdom, prophecy, tongues, interpretation, healing, discernment. The list just continues the ways that we need you. So please do not hear this as God's word putting you in a secondary place in the church. You are vital and necessary and valued here. And you're, you're just, you're, you couldn't be more important to the health of our church. So why does it matter that we use our gifts in the gathered church the way and the order that Paul describes here? Well, beyond just following God's word, he actually says in verse 32 why. The reason why we must use spiritual gifts in order is because it reflects the order of the God we serve. He's not a God of confusion, and He is not to be worshipped in confusion, whether in how we speak or in the roles that men and women take in speaking. And it's important that we worship God and edify each other in the ways that He has prescribed, in orderly ways that reflect His consistency, His perfection, and his simplicity So the aim of the spiritual gifts in the gathered church is selfless love that results in others' edification. So why we use the gifts matters? must love. How we use the gifts matter, right? We've got to be zealous, we've got to be intelligible, we've got to be orderly, and when we use them matter. We use the gifts to love our brothers and sisters, and we pursue them zealously for the good of our church family. But guys, the magnetic pull of self is always calling to us daily in our private times. And the pull to orient towards the self in our gatherings is also constant. We can think of our own benefits, needs, desires, our own reputation, our own status, our own impact, our own fears, our own experience, something with our in it. We're so pulled to self... I'm speaking with myself in that group. We're so pulled that there's actually never a time that we are truly worshiping or edifying in spirit and truth perfectly. I mean, every prophecy contains pride. Every act of service, a small expectation that we'll get something back. Every healing, a desire to see be seen as a spiritual elite. Every act of hospitality, a temptation to flaunt our affluence. So even in our supernatural gifting, we can fail to please God the way that we should. But there was a man who always worshipped his father in spirit and truth. It was pronounced king at his baptism and was so filled with the Spirit that he resisted the temptations that Adam and Eve and Israel and you and I have succumbed to time and time again. Filled with the Spirit, he rejected every lie from Satan and he rejected the lusts of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the boasting of pride. He spoke with wisdom, discernment, and an anointed authority that baffled the scribes and the Pharisees. He healed with a power that allowed even the touching of the hem of his garment to heal people with hopeless conditions, terminal, chronic conditions, gone by the mere touching of his garment. Yet, he forbid those who were healed to spread his glory until the appointed time. Absent from self Fully devoted to those he ministered. Jesus loved. Jesus pursued. He was filled with the Spirit. He served by washing feet. He extended hospitality by multiplying loaves and fishes, knowing that he would never get anything back. He would never profit from the benefit he was giving others. And this would only, in fact, increase how much he was hated by the authorities at the time. He raised people from the dead, even though they had spent every single minute of their life earning the death that they were owed. And he did all this without a trace of pride or desire for himself, because Mark 10 says the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He resisted the temptation to claim the glory of the Messiah before his father's appointed time had arrived. He resisted the temptation to demand that he be spared the cross, choosing his father's will over his own. Are you fearful in your pursuit of the gifts? Are you filled with a a, a selfish ambition that right now makes you want to stop? Well, Jesus has lived the spirit-filled life that we should have lived He felt our fears. He felt our temptations. Yet He took the full weight of the terrible wrath of God and He chose the cross. The Son of Man was filled with the Spirit in perfection. And the Son of Man pursued love continually, perpetually, all the way to the cross. He was moved to pity when He healed the man's withered hand. He wept when Lazarus died. He had compassion on the crowds when he fed the four and five thousand. The Son of Man was zealous in his pursuit of the Spirit. He withdrew regularly to pray and to commune with God. The Son of God, full of power, dependent upon the Spirit. And though he could have called down angels at any point, he could have closed the mouths of the Pharisees with a mere word of power. He could have torn apart the hands that twisted the crown of thorns over his brow. He could have consumed the planet when he found it hostile to his arrival. Though he could have done that, Jesus lived the spirit-filled life that we couldn't. Amen. And he has endured the punishment that we should have to endure by our unfaithfulness in the spiritual gifts. Friends, we all stumble and we struggle with sin, even in the use of the spiritual gifts. I'm prone to disorder, self-centeredness, lovelessness, to being spiritually lethargic. But Christ has died. And He's risen and He's ascended to send the Spirit to us in power despite our sin. But we don't got to achieve a spiritual status by using the gifts or pursuing only the ones that seem impressive. We've got Christ perfectly, perfectly Spirit-empowered record given to us. And these gifts are given to us not based on our merit. We haven't earned them. So even if you've lost the loving intent, you've ceased to pursue, or your practice is out of alignment with Paul's directives in this passage, you've not ruined your chance at the spiritual gifts. They are yours. They are ours, was in hope, because of the work of Christ. And He has promised to send His Spirit to us, to specially equip us, each one of us, to play a pivotal role when we gather in building up the church, building up His church. The gifts are now just an incredible opportunity to build up Risen Hope. And even now, Jesus is real. The Spirit is real. Jesus is sending the Spirit even right now to help us to grow, to have a corporate mindset, a selfless mindset as we think of the spiritual gifts. He's giving us grace to resist the urge to think only of ourselves. He's changing our love for self and replacing it with a love for others. He's helping us to pursue the good of our family in Christ. So I'd like to invite the band back up. Um, and I want to I just lead us through a time where we invite the Holy Spirit's sanctifying presence, um, by thinking hard about how we can change to love others and pursue the gifts for the good of others. But friends, if, if we've trusted in Jesus, we do this without the weight of condemnation. So friends, let's pursue these gifts, even now, for the benefit of others. Staying on that foundation of love, Pursuing these gifts, let's, let's really analyze right now our own, our own practice together. So the first group of people I, I just would love to address um, are those maybe who have had very little experience with the gifts. Maybe you're coming from a church where it just wasn't really talked about. Um, or you're new to the faith as a believer. I would encourage you today as a way, a way of application to go to the person that you trust and ask them, what are ways that God has already blessed me? What are things that I am just already um, good at? Or you've just seen a lot of blessing in in the ways that I've been serving. What What I've found is that oftentimes spiritual gifts coincide with natural gifts as well. God oftentimes comes along and takes some natural gifting and even enhances it more and more as we pursue it. So I'd encourage you to, to just ask other people, what are you seeing in my life? How can I pray that I grow even more in those areas? And I'd also encourage you that, that if the Lord is putting a particular gift on your heart right now, to not feel like you have to wait a few years before you ask to receive the gifts. I mean, day one or day 100, right? The gifts are for everybody. Um, so I'd encourage you in that way. And I'd also like to um, just apply this to those Maybe who would like to pray for a gift that they do not currently have. Um, so why don't we do this? Why don't we stand right now? So maybe as we were uh, as we were just looking at one Corinthians 14 and God was working in your heart, you felt like there is a particular gift that God wants to give you today. Um, what I want what I want to do is I want you to just. Take a second, and if that's you, we want to take time to pray for you now, not by having you necessarily come forward here, something like that, but to just have you in your seat where you're at, raising your, raising your hand, and having those around you pray for you for that gift. Um, so if you, if you are somebody that would like to receive a gift that you do not have right now, um, and you'd like prayer for that, can you please raise your hand right now? Thank you so much. Just take a second. Just thank you so much. Let's just take a second and look who's around